Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection interview series. This is Michael Coleman and today we're talking about the sound and music of the film Get On Up, which is a, a chronicle of James Brown, the musician, his rise from extreme poverty to becoming one of the most influential musicians in history. Now for me, I wanted to understand the story about this film, about the music, about the sound. I'm always curious about how these projects come together. And so I reached out to Scott Milan, who's the re-recording mixer, and Kurt Sobel, who's the supervising music editor. I had a great time talking with these guys, and I hope you enjoy this interview. One, two, three, four. Kurt, you sent me this great breakdown of, I guess, August 2013. That's when you started? Yes, correct. Uh-huh. Scott and I worked a little bit on the stage on two of the songs as a, as a test for Tate. Uh, that happened right when I got back from Mississippi, yeah. right? Like February. Yeah. And say so we were here looking at Try Me and Out of Sight, see how we could help Try Me become that acapella that uh, Tate wanted. And out of sight, how to eliminate some of the background crowd that was, you know, embedded in that mono track. Okay. Scott, what did you know, I guess, from just working with Tate on the help in terms of his knowledge of the music or, or how he wanted to incorporate music into story? Was it all in the script in those stages, really? Yeah, on the, on the help, he was, uh, it was interesting because it was his first feature film. And so it was kind of a new process for him. And the picture editor was a different picture editor on that one. Hughes Winborn was a picture editor, and Hughes was really the one that spent most of the time on the stage with us. Uh, Tate has a really great uh, perspective of, you know, he's able to come in and look at a film and be objective. He's not really thinking about any of the crafts specifically. He's looking at the story. It's all about story for him. And so he'll come in with a very fresh perspective. And it was great because we would get a chance to work through reels and then he'd come in and take a look, and he'd have an organic reaction to it. On this film, he was around actually more than on The Help. And so he was in the stage, and then he'd go away for a while and he'd come back in. But um, his great instincts. So it was really fantastic to be able mm-hmm. to give us the opportunity to work through content and then to get a fresh look at it. He'd get a fresh look, and he would give us a fresh look at it by his uh, reaction to it. Yeah. I mean, just looking at this breakdown, Kurt, that you have here, it says, Broke down script, what songs were indicated, you know, song scenes, years, on set. I mean, there's a lot of kind of uh, detective work that you guys w- were having to do to make it accurate. And then obviously that's relied into the script. What, where, how wide was, I guess, this net cast originally um, in terms of how many songs that you guys were possibly playing with? You know what, that was, that was actually set before I, I, I started. Um, songs were indicated in the script. And they were being sought, you know, different different versions of the song, of the live performances were being sought from James's catalog, wide catalog. Uh, and so when I started that first month in August and into September, I was being sent versions of the songs uh, to put together both as medleys and as shorter versions that we would consider shooting. And I would cut that material together and then pass it on to both Mick and Peter Afterman for their approvals before we then sent it on to Tate, who would then determine, yeah, I think that's long enough. And, he, and even at that early stage, we came close on, on the lengths of the songs and what we wanted to shoot, but that even changed a bit as we were into production next few months, and that was revised still further at that point. Okay. 
How, and how, how did this differ from the work that you guys were, and the approach maybe that you guys did for Ray? Is there a template that you, you kind of have to fit within when you're working on these music-driven films? For me, the biggest difference in prep, if that if that's what I think you're asking, is that on Ray, I had a lot more time. There was a lot more prep time. We had pre-records with Ray for seven or eight days. Uh, we really had the songs and the edits of the songs done at least a month ahead of time before we started shooting. And on this particular project, it got greenlit basically four weeks before we started shooting. And there was a, a lot of that prep time was missing in terms of making a lot of those initial decisions. Um, but ultimately, getting to the point where you have that material to pass on to your actor and to your choreographer was the same at that point. But to me, that was the biggest difference. It was a lot, a lot more front time on Ray than, than this one. What, what was the condition of these tracks? Where were they pulling them from? Because you said we're going back to Vinyl Masters and... You know what, they, they ranged. Yeah. They, I ended up, a few of them were, were indicated as stereo, but I, they were really mono tracks on a few of them. Then I, there were four tracks that came in, eight tracks, and one 16 track of Soul Power. The, the 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 quality, the sonic quality from the beginning, I thought was going to be difficult to, to work with on the dubbing stage because there was a lot of bleed. Um, quite often his vocal was tied in with lead guitar. And, you know, if you want to feature the vocal up the center or to treat it in some way for a microphone, you know, you've got other instruments tied to it. And that was going to be a difficult thing to do. So um, the way we addressed it is that in post, while we were shooting the picture and as we were heading toward the final dub, um, I went into the studio with, with the underdogs and sweetened all of these songs with new bass, new drums, new guitar, not to replace the original tracks, but to enhance them and to give Scott material on the dubbing stage that we could reach for if you, if you cut to a particular musician and, and to make it more of a, an experience for the audience in terms of surrounding them with the, with the, as if they were there at a performance. You know? you, we could not have done that with the bare-boned four and eight tracks multis that were delivered to us originally. Yeah, Scott, what did you find the dynamic range was from maybe like the before and after of what Kurt had to work with and then what he hands you off? The temp, from the temp to yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we first heard the film, we saw a avid mix of the film. So we saw the uh, how it had been cut together and and what the avid tracks were were and uh, in the production uh, while they were shooting, they did a lot of um, recording of crowds, live crowds. So they were listening to playback and reacting to playback. So the avid mix that we heard was really challenging. Uh, it was mostly, you know, leakage of playback in with crowds and uh, trying to give it a sense of being, you know, real performance. I think that's what they were leaning towards, weighing it towards the quote unquote kind of a uh, worldized effect of the tracks. But it was really, you know, it was very flat, you know, cause it's just playback and um, no, no definition, no detail. And um, so we knew we had a lot of work ahead of us. You know, the, the original tracks, as Kurt mentioned, were very, very challenging. Many of them were done 
you know, they were live performances. And so you were married to whatever was on it, whether it be audience reaction, cheers, women screaming, him on or off microphone. Um, so, you know, our challenge was to take, in some cases, a stereo image or a mono image of the, of the track, of the music, and really make it a 3D track. Because that's what we're doing, you know, audibly. We were surrounding the audience, trying to make it sound as though they were there. And it was important for us to be able to sell perspective. You know, whether it was close on him and he's right into the microphone, or whether, you know, uh, it's a distant shot, or you're tight on a guitar, or tight on a brass instrument, or a background vocal, we needed to have control over all of that. The film wasn't shot or edited based on the, the mapping of the original track's recording. So it wasn't like they listened to it and said, well, you know, with exception of maybe a saxophone break or something like right, that. Right, where you cut to the saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> they right. might have heard it as though it was featured, but it may not even really been featured close enough to the proximity of where the right. camera was going to cut to it. So all of those images, we had to, we had to mirror the image with the sound. And it was a three-dimensional soundtrack. We want the audience, we want everything, you know, going around us. I was, you know, panning instruments on and off camera, mm -hmm. vocals on and off camera. And, you know, when you're starting with three or four tracks, everything married. You open up what's called the drums and you have a guitar and a bass in there and or a vocaloid. You've got the guitar on top of it. Mm. You know, it was extremely challenging. If we had had multi-tracks, even 16 tracks that were isolated, recorded in isolation, overdubbed, like might be more conventional today, it would have been much easier to do it. But working with basically a composite, it's almost like, you know, we've now seen people take, uh, was it Nat King Cole and, mm. and his daughter, they yes. did, you know. Unforgettable. Yeah, where they came and she was able to record <clears throat> to him and him sing to her. You know, there was a lot of trickery to accomplish that. But those recordings were probably relatively clean compared to what we had to do. The the song that Kurt was just mentioning, uh, the last song in the film. Try Me. Try Me. Um, there was no acapella version of that. And it was mandated by the director that that's the only way the scene's going to work, is that it's got to be just the two of them. And, you know, that very intimate sensibility. So, you know, to find a way just to clean that track out was a major accomplishment. You know, there were a bit of, um, everything was a challenge. There were landmines and then challenges. Nothing was really straightforward. Thank God, you know, Kurt went to Universal mm -hmm. and explained to them the necessity of getting these supplemental tracks. And we didn't, for a second, we didn't want to compromise the integrity of his music. That, that we weren't going to like try to reinvent James Brown's sound and his performances. But we had to make the audience feel like, well, of course, that's the way it w I was there. Right, yeah. It would have been. And thank God, everybody, you know, all the feedback, people have been very positive about the music in general. And, you know, everybody's been very positive about his performance and his lip sync. And it feels like it's him. And how did you do it? That doesn't seem possible that it could be that close, that tight. 
you know, I think we're really proud of that, but it, uh, it uh, was a challenge and, and very rewarding at the end of the day. And even the filmmaker, you know, we would do a playback after, uh, after we went through a scene, a musical uh, performance, and have them, you know, the producer and the director just smiling from ear to ear because they'd never even thought the director, the picture editor, even who was very specific and, and uh, very concerned and had a vision of how it should work. Each of them were surprised at the end of the day how yeah. how we were able to really get it to be that transparent. What, what could you tell from the equipment that they were recording to? How much dynamics were maintained? Was there much to work with in terms of? Like the vocal, you want always to sound clean and crisp and, you know, come with that center channel, but was, was there cleanup that was needed to get it to match the rest of these tracks that you were laying in there? You, you know what? There was a little bit of work done with different processing. Like there's a Pentio processing. There's the uh, Axion mix. Yeah. Yeah. ADX. ADX okay. mix that... Uh, were attempted, and each song uh, reacted to that processing differently. Some of them mm. a bit more successful than others. And, and other than Try Me, outside of Try Me, the other vocals <clears throat> basically raised the level of the vocal amongst the leakage that was on that track slightly higher. Okay. than what we had in the original multi-track. So it did allow some flexibility for Scott to feature that vocal, but it still had material beneath it. We, we could have gone ahead. I want to say one of the thing, the other things I'm um, particularly proud of in terms of all these sweetening tracks mm. is that uh, they were recorded uh, against the original multi-tracks, um, but and with a click, but of course... The click was not always in sync with the original multi-track. It, oh, okay. it wasn't a, a click necessarily that varied on every beat. And and the music itself did vary on every beat. It wasn't locked into a, a definitive tempo as we're used to hearing songs now with loops and, and whatnot. So I actually had to go in on, on every song with every track, drums, bass, guitar, and and actually edit each beat mm. of that performance against the multi-track so that so that they would be in sync here when it came to the to the dubbing stage if i had just laid it as it was the sweetener tracks were recorded against the the multi-track it, it would have sounded out of sync that the, there would be different uh, performances playing at the same time so for me the key was to make sure that we never heard something necessarily being added to the multi-track we, we were able to mm -hmm. keep the integrity of the multi-track by by uh by editing uh, each specific beat um in in every song and uh and really happy how all that worked i mean even with even with the editing that you probably had to do the crazy thing is is there's so much soul in this music it does not feel like it's locked into a grid exactly Right. You know, these were live tracks that, or live recordings that you're working with, but it still felt like the presence and, and, and the proximity or just the the um, energy that that music carries. It, like, it didn't feel like it was overdone or remixed or redone. Like, I, I remember after the movie, I was just like, I want to go and buy the soundtrack because I want to hear those now again in the full, you know, in, in the full way. And I'm looking here and there's 20, 20 tracks on the soundtrack and almost half of them are live recordings. And 
I'm thinking like live recordings then weren't that exciting maybe to listen to, but it's a high, it's like a hybrid of then and now, I guess. Exactly. And that was exactly what we were trying to do. In fact, as we were laying these tracks down and listening to them on their own, I'm talking about the sweetening tracks. Uh, there were comments being made by the musicians and whatnot because they sounded so good if you played them against James's vocal. The idea that, well, why do you even need to use the original multi-tracks? Just use James's vocal with these new sweetener tracks and it'll be a, a great new uh, presentation of his, of his songs. And I really did not want to do that. I wanted to, to use those multi-tracks, adding these sweeteners to the music so that it would become more of a hybrid and not something new. You know? One of the and, powerful moments is the scene with, with James as a child in the boxing ring when it goes from a very subliminal type of experience that it kicks in, right? And then this transition, maybe I can set up the, how that scene was built. Uh, you know, that um, when the transition occurred coming out of the Dixieland, um, Tate had asked Tom Newman to come up with something that would be a, a, a funk groove a la James Brown that we could that we could help the audience understand that the boy was being influenced by the band members, particularly in the script. It was the drummer and the bass player. Or the bass player and drum player began to work outside of the rest of that band and influence the boy to give him the strength that he needed to stand up and to, and to fight through that being beaten down, which is all part of James's history. And so what Tom did, which was so inventive, is he took a, a bar or two from Superbad and built this whole queue out of it. And we, I received it in Mississippi before we started shooting. Uh, actually, I received two different things. And the choice was made on this one particular uh, version. And we used it for playback. And it worked so well on the set. The idea was, well, Tom will adjust it in some way in post. He might add to it. Maybe he'll change it up. We didn't quite know, but I thought it worked great as it was. Um, and so what he did do is we, he, he did sweeten it in post. He added strings. He added organ at the end uh, throughout. So that it began to build on top of this groove from Superbad. And that's how all that came about. Tate's request to Tom to come up with something that will help this transition for the boy find his strength to overcome adversity like that. And um, so, Scott, I mean, obviously you've worked with Tom Newman many times through the films you've done with Sam Mendes. How did how do you take the Thomas Newman and fit him into James Brown's world? What was the conversations that you guys had of, of, of how to make this all work? Because Tom does his thing, his, his, his music really well by itself. And he could have, you know, obviously, if it wasn't a film about James Brown, done his thing. But what was the balance? Do you think the trade off? Well, you know, the director, Tate, was very specific about not wanting, and Kurt can tell you this because he was working early on with him in temp score. He didn't want it to be a, a traditional orchestral score. He didn't want it to be emotional with strings and, and, and try to uh, evoke a certain emotion to the audience. And Tom is a genius at this. I think, you know, it's interesting, as you said, the, the contrast of his style of recording and the sound of his music to something 
that's very period, as James Brown's music was, uh, was a great counterpoint. And I think he framed very well the tone of the story emotionally uh, and gave it a, you know, I think I enjoy all of Tom's scores, but I think each time he comes back to the plate, with able, he's able to create an atmosphere. His music is atmospheric and, and it creates a mood. And I don't think it, it seemed at all out of place with this other, you know, we had a lot of, obviously, James's music. We had a lot of source music throughout the film and radios and playback of all sorts of different sorts of things. And then you have this score come in that's, that's harmonious uh, to that period piece, but evoking a whole different emotion in a way that isn't... Um, portending oh, be emotional here's an orchestra here's a string section um, so I think it's you know a credit to Tom there isn't a lot of score what is it 20, 25 26 yeah. minutes yeah how much music all the restraint there over an hour yeah it's a lot of music you know it was a very difficult uh, mix in regards to finaling um you know, we had, a, we had to pre-dub a lot of these performances of songs, as you know. And then... Eight days. We had, uh, yeah, we pre-dub for eight days. And, you know, when Kurt built the tracks out, I asked him to please build a, a kind of a palette so that stuff would come back the same every time so we could get through it as fast as we could. So there was over 100 tracks yeah. of content. As Kurt mentioned... 120 exactly. Yeah, 120 tracks. That was our widest for pre-dubbing um, and we you know we had to go through and literally it wasn't perfs you know Kurt was moving samples and uh, it was to get it to be homogenous with the original track it was for sync it was for picture cutting that he had to try to find a way to accomplish getting around a cut that was not um, exactly uh, uh, in rhythm or in the beat or on the vocal. Um, it, there are times where, you know, of course you've got, you know, you've got Chad, um, you know, he was lip syncing. And, you know, if you solo out James's song or his vocal track, and it's really not a solo because there's other stuff on it, but you solo out, you don't know what the word is. You don't know what to solo. <laughs> You know, you you think you know what the word is he's saying, but that's he didn't say it. You know, to try to fit it into someone's mouth was well. The lyric is, you know, hey, but he didn't really say hey. He said something else there. You know, in that performance. Actually, you know? Yeah, I, I think it was that lead up into the finale, right, or the medley at towards the end. I think it starts off with kind of that kind of like half word yeah. utterance in yeah. uh, Sex Machine. But I I do have a funny story about that because I got the feeling. Other than those words, I got the feeling a lot of those lyrics are just syllables. I, I could not understand what words he was saying. And, and part of the prep for me in working with Chad on the set is I would, you know, uh, send him lyric sheets and we would go over them. And I sent him the lyric sheets to, I got the, I got the feeling and there were just a lot of syllables with dot, 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 ooh, a syllable dot. 
And he, in uh, one day on the set, where he goes, he says, "What are this? What are these words?" I said, "I have absolutely no clue as to what James is singing, <laughs> and it, there weren't any lyrics on the internet that matched what he was singing. So you take a listen to it, look at what I typed out, and." agree or disagree and sing what seems to be making sense and that's he said okay that's what i'll do and he came back and and sure enough if you watch that performance and a lot of words well actually a lot of that song is not in the film but a lot of the lines were just syllables and movements and and things he'd yell out that we can't really define as an exact word and chad got it you know he, he understood that who was your point person who is the historian who who is the estate of James Brown? Who is your point of reference for any kind of retrospective, you know, history knowledge of any of this stuff? You, you know what? Uh, there were people that they contacted, both from the family. Peter Afterman was dealing with that authenticity, um, with the with making sure that the songs that were being used, uh, ideas for um, uh, how they were going to be presented. He dealt with that. Alan Leeds uh, was uh, someone that they had talked to and sent the script to, I believe, and had comments about that to make sure that things were as, as authentic as possible. And then um, uh, Margaret Yen, the music supervisor on, on the picture, uh, actually contacted, found someone who had worked in James Brown's band over the last 20 years of his life, and we brought him to the set. And he uh, worked with us during rehearsals and came up with certain lines off the cuff that weren't in the script, such as, um, uh, that's going to cost you a yard. James gets angry at Bobby Bird in the cold sweat scene when he's facing face-to-face at the piano. You know, you interrupt the session, you cause us delay, that's going to cost you a yard. I have no idea what that means, but that's something that James would say to his musicians when he was upset at them, and that was added to the script. So so having someone like that from James's band on the set on certain days when we were rehearsing was, was terrific to have. What is it like to have an executive production team, producers, executive producers with like Mick Jagger, Victoria Pierman, his production partner, and Peter Afferman, when you know that you guys are the experts of what you do, but then you have other smart people in the room too who can challenge what you're saying and, you know, it makes it an interesting dynamic. And, you know, I, I, uh, I had no difficulty with any of that. It was actually wonderful to have Mick um, there at, at the set. Uh, one one particular time, it happened to be the cold sweat scene again, uh, where initially they're trying to figure out what the groove is for James, and he's not happy with it. And I went over, and on the on the drums that we had, which were from a false start of a multi-track of James in the studio with his musicians, uh, I had prepared a false start of cold sweat that we were going to use. And on that track, the drums were too close to what Cold Sweat would have ended up as. And as I'm dealing with the drummer, I'm telling the drummer, listen, I want you to ignore what you're hearing on the playback because I'd like this to be, I don't, I don't want it to be as close to the final drum pattern as it was, as it became in the song. I want you to do something different, something that's not quite as syncopated. As I'm talking to him, Mick walked in the door to the set where we were shooting this 
And I look up and he saw me and he actually waved and I actually asked him to, I, I went over to him and I said, I'm really glad you're here. I want to know what your opinion is about this. And I brought him over to the drummer and I explained this whole thing to him. I said, you know, I just, I want him to be a little looser, you know, not as in sync with James's track to this particular scene. How do you feel about that? He said, no, I think that's definitely the way to go. That's good. And then you'll, you'll hear more of a difference once the song, the actual song kicks in. So to be able to have someone like Mick Jagger on the set to discuss something like that with was, you know, how can you beat that? It's terrific. Scott, what did you find, um, you know, of a film with this much music? How do you manage? I mean, obviously you're working closely with Kurt and you guys need to have a shorthand to understand how, I mean, you guys know what, this is not the first film that you've done, nor the first music film, but how can you share, I guess, some of those kind of processes and, and ways that you manage all these tracks and, and how you build, I guess, your the, the, the mix? You know, we were, um, the whole schedule was very compressed, you know, quote unquote, this is a low budget movie, um, but that's not the production values of the experience. So everybody was under huge time constraint and it was great. We pre-dubbed it, um, pre-dubbed the music here on the same stage, you know, we did the final on. So it was great to have that ability, but now, Kurt was right off stage and he could continue cutting and working on cues as I would go through and pre-dub. And I pre-dubbed the music, the performances out to uh, 16 5.1 pre-dubs. So I had separation yet again, we got to the final and we could introduce crowds and I could finesse further with uh, working against everything else that's in the track and you know, we saw the final images clearest and stuff, we could, we could still manipulate it. So. You know, Kurt would be busy working in one room, I'd be in here, and, and we've worked uh, uh, together in the past, and I'm very appreciative Kurt has, um, he feels uh, relatively secure, um, hopefully, that uh, do you want that it was me? going under, yeah, everything was <laughs> under control, so I would just go for it, and then call Kurt in, we'd do a playback, mm -hmm. and do some subtle changes or notes, and or, uh, or just move on. Um, you know, it was so much about not just mixing instruments to one another again it was about going to the imaging going to uh treatments it was very important to me as you saw the film he's in many different venues and each one of those had to sound like that space it couldn't just be another freedom you know it had to match the texture of those environments and a lot of those tracks weren't necessarily recorded in that kind of space so we had to make it sound like that if we were in boston garden if we were in a little club or if we were in uh, a studio a studio yeah you know getting things drier and tighten them up and then or getting them you know adding we had background vocals sometimes and and or sound alikes to match the treatments on them so that it was transparent and going back i was going back and listening and and picking out old spring reverbs to match the original recordings and uh, where there was treatment that, you know, was appropriate or the space, just the actual environment and then changing those environments. So there was a lot to do in a short period of time, but um, it was great because, you know, I know, I think he, he knows what I'm likely going to come up with. I know what he's likely going to like. So it was, a, it was a good, you know, it worked out really well. It was a lot of work. You know, again, the, the studio and the budget was not necessarily anticipating spending that much time prepping music, but it was what it was. It just had to get done. 
And, you know, if the audience doesn't believe for one second that that is radiating out of, you know, his body, then we've blown the illusion of a biopic. They start, well, the guy does a pretty good job, but I don't know, I didn't feel like it was coming from him or it didn't seem organic. And um, it's so important. It was one of the first things uh, the picture editor asked me after we did that first Avid playback for us. What do you think? I said, you know, as in with Ray, yeah, you buy Ray. James Brown in the first 20 seconds. Yes. I mean, not Brown, we have Jamie Foxx in the first 20 seconds. If we can't do that with Chad, the, the film has no ground. It's not grounded. It, it, it just, um, it will not serve the film. So it was a, it was a big responsibility to make those performances work and make it feel like it's him. You know, he did a great job doing uh, James's uh, dialect and the slang and body language and stuff like that. But then, you know, to make it feel like those songs were coming out of his body was a, was a huge responsibility. You know. Were there some Easter eggs when you're going through these tracks that you guys came across that maybe hadn't been you know, found before? You know what? I had the great pleasure of hearing some of those things when I got the multi-track. Uh, sometimes there was talking of James in front and behind, and I actually made a uh, CD or put those together for Chad so that he could listen to that and, and understand how he spoke to the musicians, how he worked in the studio. But Beyond that, we didn't use any of that material uh, in this final. You mentioned before about the shorthand between Scott and I. I think because we had done Ray together, um, it, it, everything, the process seemed to be the same. Sweetening those songs, figuring out how to place them in those various environments. This was basically very close to that, but on a much bigger scope. He had a lot more instrument sweetening than we than we did on Ray um, but it was great being able to having had that relationship and and continue on a film like this who else in your guys's team I mean obviously it wasn't just the two of you so who else in your team was supporting you in terms of you know um, throughout the editorial pre and post um, to do what we wanted with the music yeah uh, you know what? I have to say we were sort of... Were you alone? Feel, I feel like we were somewhat... I felt very confident in what we were doing. Yeah. Um, to then present it to Tate as here's what we think works best for this particular venue. But do you feel the same? I mean, I... Yeah. No, I think he entrusted you and he, he entrusted did. us yeah. to collectively to to service that. And there were really no... No one else. That, yeah, and there was no... He had no... Yeah. At the end of the day, he was, you know, as I said earlier, very, very pleased. I think it, it uh, we his expectation. Yeah. I mean, we were left on our own to do what. So that, that, that's what I that's, that's what I wanted to allude to. So two guys in a room with all this material that probably hasn't been surfaced or experienced in this way. What were those kind of pinch me moments for you guys when you started pulling stuff up? And I mean, that's the fun I think of working on these films is you have a lot of those, right? It was great, and you know, we even found stuff like when, we, when I was pre-diving. I called Kurt in, and in, in, uh, when we were in doing um, uh, Billy, uh, I mean Little Richard. Oh yeah, what's right. the cue? Brent, uh, uh, Tutti Frutti. Yeah, doing Tutti Frutti. Oh, yeah. So you know, they, the band's assembling, and they start playing, and the camera cuts oh, around, stuff like that. And we had sweetener tracks, and I'm looking at it, 
bass player, like the bass fell off of him for a second, you know, and it's like, you know, so <laughs> we had to find a way. It was something that it was so subliminal, so fast and stuff like that, that visually actually is seen. Yeah. We make it happen. So the bass had to go away for a couple yeah. bars and come yeah. back on. <laughs> so it was, it was yeah. fun to yeah. like visually look at it again, listen to it and musically sound, make it sound great and cool and, you know, have the right groove and the right sense and feel of the time but then to you know really we're, we're like part of the performance yeah. when we were putting it to right. picture we're part of the performance that's right. and and that's a lot of fun that's where you you start to laugh and you know it's like that's cooler than i thought it could be you know and you know kurt had different um uh times where there was additional supplemental brass figures and stuff like that and you know all of a sudden you cut around from you know over their backs to in front of them and then you know flipping the horns around because of, you know yes. the perspective shifts or you know it was fun because there there are things that no one in the world will know that we did it right. Right. because it fits yeah but if you just laid it up against the track and didn't do these things it would not feel organic it wouldn't be right, right. and so it's you know the closer and closer every time we went through it there wasn't a time we went through a track where we didn't slip a sink of something yeah. or didn't change the nuance of one thing or a guitar thing or a bass line or snare or way with there was one hi-hat hit. Let's try to see if we can get something for that. Yeah. So we continually were looking at it. It was never one time where we let go. <laughs> it's done. Yeah. We're perpetually trying to improve it. And and that that is a lot of fun, you know, because it's, it's kind of like a treasure chest. You That's know? right. Uh, how, how big of fans were you of James Brown? How much exposure did you have before this project? Because I know after a project like this, you feel like you know everything about somebody because you've been hanging out with it for a while. Well, for myself, I certainly know a lot more about his life. I didn't know any of the background of his life. I knew his, some of his songs. So for me, that was the most interesting part. This was, you know, an interesting guy who had a troubled past, and he brought it out in the genius of his music and it was pretty remarkable you know life and i i didn't know similarly i didn't know that much about his life other than later in his life when he had some mm. troubles and, and he was in the news but um i got a chance to meet him once and very subdued it was later in his life and such and, um but the history he's an iconic figure in in music obviously an innovator in business and in music as is portrayed in the film and um, you know like Ray he had a mm -hmm. troubled past some yeah. similarities as far as being born and raised yeah. in bordellos and some of these things are similar but uh, you know he was a genius and he just uh, you can appreciate it more the other part about the story that I didn't know was his relationship with Bobby Burt and, yeah. and the history of that and how you know at the end of the day how really you know Throughout his life, there was times where he abandoned people, and there were many times where he was abandoned. Yet, at the end of the day, you know, to have someone there with you the whole ride, and that, you know, that friendship and that relationship ultimately sustained, you know, under very difficult, trying circumstances, um, was very emotional. And I, I didn't know that about him. I didn't know about that kind of silent partner. Yeah. And lastly for you guys, what, what are your one or two favorite tracks that stand out um, out of all of them that were in there? There's 20? How many total did you guys have? 21 or 22, as I recall. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? I think the, the sequence at the, the, you know, in the third the, act, the Olympia. In the Olympia, the three songs back to back, always get people 
you know, reacting. If you yeah. sit, sit with an audience and see it, they always react at the end of that, which is very, that's a lot of fun, you know, because it builds to a crescendo. Um, I like, it's a man's world too. Yeah. The, the yeah. vibe the of that whole thing, I like that a lot. I would I would have said the same thing. Olympia is the first thing that came to mind, um, and I, because I for me, I remember cutting that medley together, uh, different versions of it, different lengths of the songs, um, and presenting that, and then shooting that, and you know being on the set for all of that, and figuring out how he's going to talk to the can talk to the audience, and then jump to the microphone. All of that for me was a very, uh, very fulfilling how that turned out. And I really, uh, really enjoyed, really enjoyed being a part of that, participating, and then and then seeing it come to fruition the way Tate had envisioned it originally in the script. And we had, just so that you know, you know, as far as the crew, you know, Greg and I and, and Drew at the desk, and, and then we had... Um, well, Bill Bernstein, who works with Tommy, often was here at the very end. He was able to be a part of the final at the very end. And, and Greg Baxter was the uh, you know doing dialogue and effects. And then and the others sound uh, the other music editor. Oh, Jordan. Source, so. Jordan. I brought Jordan Corngold in at the end to take over some of the stereo source pieces when when I was uh, really becoming a bit overwhelmed with the amount of work and the time that we had going on here, and he did a terrific job um, supporting that as well, supporting that work. Nice. Well, I, I think it's the type of film that you want to see in theaters because it's... When can you hear James Brown music in a theater like that? It's kind of... It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Good. Glad you feel that way. <laughs> well, I, I, the thing after watching it, I was like, shoot, I don't know if I own that much James Brown music, and all I want to do is run to the record store and then, you know, like everyone, get excited about music that we've had all around us all, all this time. So I think that's, a, you know, that's the, the success of a picture, a picture like this. It's so funny. I was watching, uh, um, as it so happens, the last 20 minutes of Purple Rain last night on TV with my wife, and there was Prince up on stage throwing the microphone stand for the audience, grabbing the cable and then doing the splits to the left and doing the splits to the right. I said, James, there's James right there in, in, in the Purple Rain, you know. I, I, can't believe, I, I just can't believe how much music he has released. I was looking at this, the discography, early 60s, you know, and everything throughout. It's, it's remarkable and it's obvious that, you know, his impact is is going to be felt for a long time and obviously like this film is a good reminder that you know there's there's still soul and there's still these things that you can't touch or see but you can feel it and obviously that's the success of a film like this so yeah and hopefully you know i i know the audience may be currently skewed towards you know um people of our generation you know but i hope that Everybody gets to see the film because yeah. you're right. I think it's something that that is like old is new again. You know, there are threads of this stuff in everything. Everywhere. And as he says in the beginning of the movie, you may not own my stuff, but you've heard it. You know, and that's the deal. And, and you know how cool to have you know that that legacy, and it'll be here forever. The music will be here forever, yeah. and yeah. and it will be enjoyed and copied and and uh, replicated or tried to replicate, but, uh, you know. There's only one James Brown. There's only one. <laughs> yeah. and, and Chad, 
Bozeman brought him to life like it was unbelievable uh, witnessing that on the set and, and working with him and seeing how hard he was working, both on the dance moves and to nail the 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 vocals on every song he would not give up he wanted it as as perfect as possible so none of this would be as successful if it weren't for him really uh, leading the way with tate yeah. you know and we had a chance he came onto the set or our set here yeah he came to the, the <laughs> stage uh we were doing uh the last uh the last song uh, mm -hmm. was Try Me. Try Me you again. Try Me. Yeah. 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 Really. And just coincidentally, he came to visit Tate, and, and we had just finished really making the real pass <laughs> at that reel and turned the lights off and let him watch it. And he was blown away. You know, he, was in, he was in tears, you know, and it was really cool. I wish earlier you were talking about, you know, the influence like Jagger would have mm -hmm. on a film like this. I was hoping he'd show up here. You know, you're we're setting ourselves up for being scrutinized or but <laughs> yeah. I would have loved if he had come yeah. in to see it here and hear it here and stuff. Unfortunately we didn't have that opportunity. And even on we we had a situation on Ray where we had planned a screening of the film on the dub stage just for him, but he yeah. was ill. And not anybody no one really knew how ill he was. And we had it all set for one particular yeah. day. At the very yeah. last minute we got a call saying he can't there and he passed away very soon after that but i was like i'd love to have him come in here and it's yeah. not like see the movie obviously but i would love to sit him in the theater and let him hear it because yeah. you know that it'd be great to get a perspective if kurt weren't here this film you know his contribution to getting this uh music into this movie was was huge and it's interesting films that uh don't seem difficult when the audience looks at it, are the most difficult. And in my opinion, he was a uh, co-sound editorial supervisor. Sometimes films are supervised, sound editorial supervised by maybe an effects guy, mm -hmm. a design person, and a dialogue person. And in this case, uh, Kurt was, you know, a supervisor of this whole soundtrack when it comes to uh, the music was so important. And, and also, frankly, all the production crowds and stuff like that, mm -hmm. Uh, he cut all that into sync because it had to be in perfect sync with the music. So, cutting yeah. effects as well as music on this one. I mean, the, the the funny thing is, is like it's so true to what the film was speaking to, which is like everybody wants, or it's like everybody wants to be James Brown, but it's like just being associated with James Brown, you know, raises everybody. And, and I think obviously being associated to James Brown by working on this film for you guys must be that similar type of experience as if you were a band member and. You know, it's kind of it's it's kind of hard to shake. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, it's wonderful. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it's a joy. Yeah, and a privilege. And and uh, Tate's a great uh, filmmaker and a great leader. And and he's very poised for a young filmmaker. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a good, great uh, individual to collaborate with. He allows you to do that, mm -hmm. and that's really rewarding. You you know you want to, you know, those are the people who inspire you to yeah. bring more. You know. Cool, guys. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this and go see the film if you haven't. And this type of thing, like, I'm still thinking about today even after seeing it last night. And all I want to do now is go find as much vinyl and recordings as I can of him because it's just like it's those recordings capture so much of the essence of him. And to see him on the big screen is, is pretty awesome, too. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you.